Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Eat Sleep Suplex Retweet. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the latest episode of ESSR Central. It's not even Central, it's Feature, and that is watch one of the show today. My name is Sarah, and for today, it is coming up five years in the making, or not even five years in the making, five years in the making of this show. That's what we'll say. It is five years since the the term for NXT took their show on the road and took their way all the way up to Toronto ahead of TakeOver Toronto in 2016. But before I get my, my panel all ready and talking today, just a tiny little bit of housekeeping, you know, the usual. Make sure you're following us on our social medias. We are on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all at Suplex Retweet. Easy to find, one one handle, you shouldn't forget. And then also make sure that you are following us on the lovely social media platforms and also the podcasting platforms as well. So we are on Android, Apple, all good podcasting sites as well as Spotify. Just search Eat Sleep Suplex Retweet. Make sure you guys are following us on our YouTube channel. We are going live every so often. We have got Quiz Showdown. We have got Book It, which coming up soon, or whenever we decide to get it done, it is going to be Stephen Wilson defending his Booker T trophy against Graham McRobbie and myself in a triple threat match in the upcoming Book It series. As well, we've got other fun and interesting things. But coming up, it'll actually be out by the time that this um, episode will be on our main feed. But check out Quiz Showdown 16. Oh my god, we're back again. And it is hosted by myself. Just wait for a whole bunch of shenanigans. Um, And yeah, make sure that you are joining in the chat with us on our community page. Now, David Campbell has goat questions every now and again. Get yourself involved and we can chat all things wrestling. But on to the good stuff. We have a variety of panellists that are here today, all to talk about NXT TakeOver Toronto. Starting off, we have the smoothest voice in podcast and one of the nicest men in the world, Mr. Gary Kerrin. Oh, thank you, Sarah. You know, I always love hanging out with you. The rest of the panel, less so, but you, absolutely. That's why Gary's my favourite. <laughs> and one of my next panellists, he seems to think that everything's going to happen around the Undisputed Era. His life is Undisputed Era. I'm pretty sure he screams Adam Cole's name in his sleep. It's David Hockney. <laughs> uh, listen, you know, with some news breaking from NXT, I'm remaining optimistic that we might see an OGUE reunion on AEW pretty soon. Try saying that three times. <laughs> but yeah, I'm. Oh, it's all about the Undisputed for me. So you have very, very accurate description there. You scream Adam Cole in your sleep? No, I just say baby. (laughs) 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 Moving on to another panellist. He is a newcomer with ESSR, so this is why he's getting a free pass from me. Um, With any sort of slating, it is Tom McManus. Thank you very much, Sarah. I appreciate the free pass. I won't use it up too quickly. (laughs) And finally, rounding off our panel, it is Mr. It's My Podcast. Mr. I worry about wrestling for such and such a newspaper, but can't even get the job done. 
It's a Stephen Wilson. <laughs> ah, such outdated patter, Sarah. I've not heard that in a while. Uh, yeah, what an interesting start to the show. Someone called Gary a nice person. And I don't know, I don't really want to know what Dave shouts Adam going when he does certain things, but hey, oh. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, you have to pay for Dave's OnlyFans to see that. It's a good honest rate, you'll be worth your money. This is how he pays for the hoagie house, everybody. And we have to pay for Lecky. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so we are talking about a show that is happening around about five years ago. And looking at the difference for some of these, um, not only talent on the show, but even just the show, how it's presented itself. Stephen, see when you look back and just even the setup of the, the TakeOver show in comparison to what we are now known um, for NXT, it, it's so much of a difference, isn't it? Oh, it even feels so long ago because we've not we've been deprived of proper good TakeOver environments for so long because of the, the damn pandemic. So it just feels weird watching some takeovers back now and just because it was such an enclosed atmosphere, the crowds were always red hot. It pretty much is what I, I, I most dynamite shows are like now. That's kind of what it feels like to give a, a good representation of how that takeovers were back in about 2016, 2017 time. Oh, absolutely. I mean, Gary, you've experienced a crowd live up in Toronto as well for, for uh, SummerSlam, not an NXT takeover, but just like from your point of view like the actual crowd in Toronto itself is actually quite a lively bunch I was at uh, TakeOver Toronto too Sarah the night before uh. SummerSlam so I've been to TakeOver in that very building although it was uh, sponsored by a different bank these days there and oh no I loved watching re-watching this show and I missed the setup. I missed the three nights TakeOver Saturday the pay-per-view on the Sunday, the Raw that follows it, I've I missed that. I've missed the presentation of NXT takeovers. You know the the sort of darker feel that goes around it, the way the light, the so the, the rings lit, the f- fabulous entrances that you get with them, and the red hot crowd. It's great. I was looking this one up. So three nights in a row, uh, they had 13,000 fans for TakeOver, 19,000 for SummerSlam, and 17,000 for Raw on the Monday night. That's phenomenal, three attendances for for these events. But no, it was great going back and watching it. And also one of the things I loved, Sarah, about these shows is seeing where the, the characters, where the performers are five years later. And there's some of them that if you had said to me in 2016, this is where this person will be five years later, I wouldn't have believed you. Oh, yeah. And moving on to the first match, I mean, during the actual video package, you know that they were setting up for um, the entrance for Bobby Roode. And Tom, see when it comes to the takeover entrances at this time, it always gave you a big match feel. I mean, Bobby Roode had a, he had a choir on stage ready for him to come out to um, just what was your initial thought when seeing like just this type of entrance for, for the glorious one um, it was it was one of the things you looked forward to at takeovers especially at that time um, how how Bobby Roode and Nakamura especially were gonna were gonna go all out for an entrance um, the, the choir one's one of my favourite ones of Bobby Roode's 
Um, I, I always forget that it's that particular takeover. It just it made him feel like such a star. It, yeah. it made it, it made him to the to the point that they had to dumb it down so much in later years, <laughs> <laughs> so that people would actually boo him when he was a heel. But it was yeah, the the Bobby Roode glorious domination is such a fantastic entrance. Oh, it is extremely glorious. And see something that you said actually, Dave. The one thing that I pointed out um, for myself when making notes for this uh, particular show that Canadians treat, seem to treat other Canadians as a hero even if they are meant to be the ultimate bad guy and this is what the, the Toronto crowd did for Bobby Roode um, is that something that you think it should have expected or um, no yeah I do expect that you know I think uh, he already gained you know a massive following under his sort of glorious persona particularly with DIY doing their their vine videos of him doing you know the glorious the glorious bombs with him just nodding in the background and stuff so yeah I think he, he already had a bit of a following following going on at the time but he was obviously a veteran on the scene particularly in TNA and stuff so he already had a another massive following to begin with and yeah, I think that's just the, the nature of Canadians, you know, they're genuinely friendly people as well. It doesn't matter if, you know, if they're, who they're cheering has some heelish tendencies, they will cheer for them regardless if they have that massive following. Mm. No, I, I think that's, that's definitely something that I, I thought for myself. And But we'll, we'll get a little bit into this match. Now, this is a sort of come off from the Dusty Rose Tag Team Classic when these two were very briefly chucked together as a team in the first round against Sanity and um, to which Bobby Roode decided that he was having none of it jumped off the apron and sort of left Ty Dillinger to fend for himself um, Gary, see this this was like that sort of match in the making and for it being like an opening round like an opening show match it seemed to be very very fitting on the card Yeah, Uncle Dave gave it 3.75 stars um, it's odd, when I was watching the show back, I've got so used to the first match of a takeover being a tag team match that when it started off with a singles match, because I didn't remember it, it's like, oh, <laughs> I wasn't expecting to, uh, two people out here for it. But it was, um, so in some ways it was a bit of an unusual start, but it was a, I thought it was a really solid match. The crowd, you know, clearly into it. Lots of this is awesome chance, and there were some nice bits about nice bits of storytelling round about it. I loved um, um, Rude stomping and Dillinger's fingers, and then mocking them with the ten counts. And it's also shocking to think uh, just how over uh, Ty Dillinger became uh, and what's happened of him, of him now. But yeah, there was some really. Uh, re this was a, I think, a good solid match say there was um um some nice spots in it you know Rude trying to cheat to win um which led to some near fall uh, sequences super kicks from dillinger as well the sharpshooter spot my goodness did the fans love <laughs> love to see the sharpshooter get broke out in canada oh yeah i, I think like it's guaranteed to get a crowd police every single time that someone like tries to hit the sharpshooter um, that Stephen, this match as well even before it started you could see that there was actually a split crowd right down the middle between Ty Dillinger and Bobby Roode with this is awesome chance even before the guys had locked up um, did you kind of expect that sort of storytelling that came from a dusty classic opening round match 
Yeah, I think it was helped by the fact that this was probably Dillinger's most over period as a wrestler period. I mean, you could even say now he's in AEW, he was still the most over during this time as Ty Dillinger, the, you know, the latter stage of his NXT run. This is actually the first of uh, three takeovers in a row that Dillinger opens the show. He opens it at the next one, around the, the Rumble time against uh, Eric Young. And he also is in an eight-man tag at the Orlando TakeOver. Him, Roderick Strong, Cassius Ono, and uh, Ruby Soho, as she's now known, against Sanity. So he was a guy at that time NXT could rely on, you know, to get the crowd going, because everybody loved his stuff. Uh, and as Tom mentioned, the, the Bobby Roode entrance, he was over before the match started, you know. So back to both of them from Canada as well made it even more interesting. I mean, I when I remember watching this initially, I remember that being less of a bit more of a one-sided contest. I felt like it was a lot of Dillinger coming up from beneath and having a lot of close opportunities. But watching it back, you think, yeah, no point is he going to beat Bobby Roode, but he's going to make Bobby Roode. He's going to make Bobby Roode look good doing it, which it does very well. All the I mean, yeah, it's something that we have talked about on our past shows of like Ty Dillinger, unfortunately, being. The, the sort of enhancement talent but Dave, he made Bobby look, Bobby look absolutely amazing especially because it was still in his early days of NXT. Oh for sure yeah and do what I thought was quite clever about the announce, the ring announcement is that he, Bobby Roode wasn't billed as being from Canada even though everybody mm. knows he is Canadian uh, but yeah Dillinger was billed as obviously being from Niagara Falls uh, so having him having let the people know that he's He's obviously the Canadian citizen, but some people might not realise, you know, Rude is actually Canadian as well. I think that was a, a way to maybe get Dillinger, you know, a bit extra support from the crowd. But yeah, as you said, you know, I think the last time we discussed a, a review where Ty Dillinger was involved, he was on the losing end to a pretty short match against Apollo Crews. But then this time around, this was very much more his breakout performance against an established veteran, but someone who'd already had gotten a a massive following just from his entrance alone. I mean, that's that's a big mountain to climb. But for him to get his, you know, his 10 chant over, I mean, it was, it became a synonymous thing for the entirety of the night, you know, with the referee counts, you know, yep. being drowned out. By Even in the main event. <laughs> yeah, that was, honestly, they were so loud, it was ridiculous. But I think the use of the sharpshooter, as you said, you know, doing a sharpshooter in Canada is probably second nature to a lot of these people. Although a sharpshooter on Survivor Series weekend, though, not exactly the um, <laughs> not exactly the the most cleanest of, of issues, shall we say? There is yeah. some controversy around that. What year was it that Dillinger entered the Rumble at ten? Twenty seventeen. Yeah, I mean the, the rumble, the rumble following this. Uh, the rumble like following this one. I mean the reaction, Stephen. You, you and I watched it together that night. I remember you completely marking out at that point. <laughs> it was, <laughs> it was fabulous. It was so popular. It was just I so mean, over. The bit I would have loved if they had made him number eleven. <laughs> that rumble, because everybody <laughs> thought he was going to be ten. You could hear all the yeah. chanting going. I just uh, thought it'd be yeah, proper. Yeah, had to happen. <laughs> Although the following year he was meant to be number ten, but then he got replaced by Sami Zayn. So I suppose that was a, a one way, yeah. one clever way of yeah, not. Yeah, I think it. that Rumble appearance was probably the heat of his WWE run because unfortunately his debut the night after WrestleMania 33 wasn't it? it he didn't really hit nice. many heights to SmackDown after that, did yeah. he? Debuted the same yeah. night as Nakamura, so mm -hmm. it's never gonna. Yeah, be, yeah that's never gonna, not gonna work up. out. 
Um, but th this match went on for about 16 and a half minutes. It was actually the third longest match on the card. Um, I take it you guys all agree that it sh that the right there was the right winner to come out of this match. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, I mean, it certainly um, it certainly painted Ty in a good light, but I think Rude needed it more. And then from one um, outcome of a Dusty Rose Tag Team Classic match to another, we start off with the one of two tag team matches for this event, which is the Office of Pain taking on TM61. Uh, with Paul Ellering suspended in the in the dark cage above the <laughs> ring. <laughs> now, Tom, we knew that this was a sort of it was kind of a a, a given thing that something was going to happen because throughout the entire tournament, Paul Ellering was getting himself involved. I mean, that's one of the reasons that um, DIY never made it to the finals. And um, but having him suspended in the shark cage, do you think that was like? A smart move, or just instead of the whole, doing the whole banning from ringside? I thought it was a smart move at the time. I, the, pro, the only problem with this shark cage manoeuvre is the fact that it, it reminded Vince that shark cages existed. <laughs> so you've got, you got at least one shark cage match every single year, and they just got progressively worse and worse as they went on, because they were always trying to top themselves every time of like, how out of the shark cage get out of the shark cage um this was this was a great usage of it like it it was a good throwback to paul ellering from his legion of doom road warriors days um where where they were always sort of involved in a in kind of ways to get ellering out of the way um but yeah i think i think it was really great for ellering to still be there because you've got the points in the match where they're, they're still carrying on this idea of the Authors of Pain being rookies um, and they're looking to Ellering during the match and he's still shouting instructions <laughs> down to them and it's absolutely... I think it's fantastic. Ellering's most... Ellering's manager run in, in with the Authors of Pain is, is very underrated in my oh, opinion. Yeah, totally. Mm -hmm. They missed him so bad when they took him off. Yeah, it was, yeah. Bad, it was a really botched move that the minute they get uh, called up, they take him off. He was the glue that basically held them together and actually gave them, you know, purpose and direction. This is always one of my pet hates when uh, an NXT act, if I can put it that way, gets called to the main roster and they change it on the main roster, like Sanity without okay. Nikki Cross. The same. If you're going to do that, do it on what was the developmental brand at the time. Why change it? And that they, they could have tried the Authors of Pain on NXT without Ellering and we'd have seen then that it wasn't the same act rather when it went on to the to the uh, went on to Raw and they certainly missed uh, a great deal without them then as well. well I will I will say just to interject I don't know if this is definitely true but I do believe that Ellering not carrying on with them was his choice he didn't want to do the travel schedule yeah, I'm, I'm not sure 100%, they, but I think it was Ellering's choice, rather. No, no, uh, you're you are right. I'm sure they could have come to an agreement, maybe, oh, with yeah. doing television rather than doing the, the full circuit in, in some ways. Sarah, I've got uh, two funny stories, but I think they're funny anyway. One is, I've been in the shark cage. Uh, it was at, <laughs> it was at, and with Lucy, my daughter, because they had it at Fan Access at Mania 33. And Shane Thorne, my son Ollie, absolutely hates him. 
we were at an NXT house show in Florida. Ollie would have been, uh, he's eight now, so he would have been maybe five at the time. And he had a Hulk Hogan t-shirt on, which he'd picked up at Hogan's beach shop in Orlando that day. <laughs> and Thorne was going into the ring for his match with uh, um, Tyler Breeze. And he came over to Ollie and said to him, Hey kid, I love Hulkamania. High five. And he put his hand out and my son went to high five him. And he panned him and he was raging. <laughs> and I, I pissed myself laughing. Uh, <laughs> brilliant. Never been more proud of Ollie. <laughs> um, well, speaking of Shane Thorne, like that's a good way to actually move on because Dave, did you actually expect TM61 to be the ones to make it to the final of the Dusty Cup? Absolutely not. I mean, not when you've got uh, guys like. Uh, I mean, obviously the revival had to pull out because of injury, but then the semi-finalists you had DIY and Sanity. Like, Sanity would have easily made, you know, great finalists, as would have DIY, but obviously that's a, a, another story for the next match. But these guys, TM61, they just sort of, you know, were the, the, the dark horses of this entire tournament, you know, beating guys like uh, Austin Aries and Roderick Strong, but that was under a singles match concept. But still, it's, it's defeating, you know, very credible NXT talents at the time, and then they just sort of shot to, shot to fame, you know, with the final and stuff. But the problem was, I don't think they had enough momentum behind them to convince the fans that they were actually going to win. I mean, the story with Shane Thorne is obviously a little bit different now because he's obviously had the whole history of being Slapjack as part of Retribution. But um, And Nick Miller, I think, obviously made his own decision to return to Australia. But um, yeah, it's... I mean, these guys were good, but I just don't know if they were worthy of, you know, making it as far as they did, given how... Oh how much, you know, in, like, I, I want to say inexperienced they were compared to some of the some of the more recognizable names in the remainder of the tournament. And to be honest, I'm surprised they didn't call themselves uh, Team Will-O-Wisp because I did do my uh, Googling on Pokemon TM, TMs <laughs> and TM61 is Will-O-Wisp. And it's also the fact that Shane Thorne's a big Pokemon fan does not help that. See, I, I agree with Dave. That's a sentence I never thought I'd say too much because I thought when I was watching this back, TM61 didn't look like the polished presentation. They looked very much, for me, like a work in progress. Like Nick Miller looked like he was making his own wrestling gear. I thought they said the pants didn't seem to fit him particularly well, but I thought in terms of quality of match, I thought they put on a really good show and there were some really nice uh, spots in there, like the the climbing the structure that held the shark cage in place. I thought that was quite innovative as well. Yeah. Um, lots of nice moves in it. The chain going flying into the crowd. Somebody nearly got a compensation <laughs> claim there yep. as well. You see, you, see, you see Shane, actually, I think there was a backdrop on the ring apron. He pretty much landed on his, on his neck. I'm surprised he was able to continue. And as we all know, the ring apron's the hardest part of the ring. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, Stephen, this is what was meant to be the actual, not so much push for TM61 as a babyface tag team, but as just as an extra tag team in the NXT division, because we all knew going into this that AOP, they were the undefeated tag team, they were going to win it, and there was no chance in hell for uh, for TM61. Um, But is there anything that you think could have been done different to sort of help get TM61 over that threshold? Because at the same time, they were fighting for like the top babyface team with DIY. I think 
TM61, looking back on it, they were really unlucky. I can't mind if it was Shane or Nick. I think it might be Nick who got a couple of injuries. Mm-hmm. And not long after this one, that really derailed them. Because I think it was a shame, because TM61, before they came to NXT, were a hot tag team in independent circuit. Yep. Uh, they did eventually give them the proper name, TMDK. Uh, the Mighty Don't Kneel, you know, they went with the Mighty more than anything, but yeah, the Mighty Don't Kneel had a much better ring to it than TM61, you know, as Dave says, it's like a Pokemon index. Uh, but yeah, it, it's, um, watching this back, this is one of the matches on this TakeOver card I remember the most. I think it was that Shane form spot that Gary mentioned always stands out to me. But watching it back, I feel like TM61 did a brilliant job in this match because let's be brutally honest the, the Dusty Classic this, that year was as you said Sarah built around Offers of Pain you know mm-hmm. it was either going to be Offers of Pain or Sanity you know it was going to be one of the two of them and I think obviously when Sanity went out and it was left to be Offers of Pain and DIY it was going to be it was going to be Offers of Pain so I think if you're going to pick a team the only two options would have been I think TM61 or DIY because a lot of the as I've mentioned before we started the show briefly, uh, it's a stacked Dusty Classic tournament. But it's a stacked Dusty Classic tournament where a lot of singles guys thrown together in tag teams. Mm-hmm. So there's not really many other than on the face side of things. So TM61, I think they'd obviously just brought them in. They wanted to kind of establish them. And I think having them be the guys to make offers of pain look good is a good wise to point to it. Actually, watching it back, obviously we have talked about Shane Ford more than anything. I think Nick Miller now known as Mikey Nichols. I don't know where the hell he is, but he was last seen in New Japan before the pandemic. Um, he went home it, to Australia so that he yeah. could actually be in Australia. He's a stand, he's, he was a standout in this match. I thought, I didn't remember him being that much of a powerhouse. I always thought oh my God, some of the moves he did, Stephen, were incredible. incredible. The, the way he was yeah. throwing those big points around. I think Gary was right, the fact that if he had some, you know, bless, create a character ring gear, they might have been a bit off instantly over, but <laughs> no, I think um, I think they had some bad luck because they're a good tag team. I think Shane Ford especially. Now, he's still in WWE and he's had some rotten luck. I mean, mm-hmm. he's going to have to do some amount of grafting on whatever show they put him on to get over the Slapjack gimmick because he's much better than Slapjack. Much oh, yeah. better. I mean, we can definitely <laughs> say the same about Dijakovic as well. We can definitely say the same Aye. about that. But Dijakovic's at least having, you know, barnstorming matches with Damien Priest, you know, he just needs to change his name and he's sorted. <laughs> I see for their ring gear. See for their ring gear. They should have just had it with fire on it. Then they could properly be Team Willow Wisp. You're totally on this Team Willow Wisp. Next, you'll be like tweeting Nick Miller and oh, yeah. Shane Thorne about it. You're like this is what. Oh you yeah, totally. Been. Yeah. <laughs> like, and here's TM24 with lightning bolts all over them because oh, they'd be Christ. Team Thunderbolts. <laughs> Absolutely. This, stop this it. Was, this was the, this was the lowest rated match on the card from Dave Meltzer, but I actually think this match is better than the three stars. I think it's a really good match for what it is. Sure, I, th- I think this is this is a match in the opener. As much as the opener is a solid I would, match, I, yeah, I agree. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's surprising to see WWE put two similar matches back to back because we obviously have another tag match that follows on from that although the presentation is quite different I think what hurt this match a little bit was the I'm not sure the the crowd believed in the way that you were just articulating that TM61 were going to win it I thought the finish was awfully sudden Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. and yeah it just just left it feeling a wee bit a wee bit flat but I mean three stars out of five 
you know, if you're worst, not bad. I was gonna, yeah, exactly. If your worst match of your show is good, then you can't, <laughs> you can't really <laughs> complain. Yeah, I think for like the eight eight minutes twenty for what they were given, you don't know if they if it seems like that was maybe the match because of the sudden finish might have been the match to sort of get cut a little bit um, or they were maybe a little bit too anxious for timing especially because you did have kind of two rookies in the ring um, yeah. but we will move on to the NXT tag team title match now this again culminated from the Dusty Classic um, in the fact that this was meant to happen as a semi-final match if I'm correct in remembering um, that it was meant to be quarter-final um, it was meant to be DIY versus the revival, but this was a, a last chance, um, chance, wait, a last chance chance for DIY to take the tag titles. Because um, little did we know that this was in the slap bag in the middle of the story that they had been creating since the Cruiserweight Classic and the breakup of DIY. But this was a two out of three falls match. Um, so we'll start with like the first fall, but Stephen. It was it's such a good way in the fact that they started off the match and then when they they sort of kept Johnny Gargano away from Champa, knowing that he was at this time and the story was telling that he was the bigger threat than what Gargano was. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that was I think this was one of the best stories that the NXT's played in a long time, and it's perfectly. Uh, summed up in this match. Yeah, I think they obviously knew that Champa was the biggest threat because they played off of a continuation of what happened in Brooklyn at the previous takeover and Gargano was the one that tapped out to um, Scott Dawson. I uh, can't remember what his name is now. I always get the names mixed up now in AEW. Dax Harwood. Is he Dax? Or he's Dax. He is right. Dax. Dax right, is Dax. Dax, yeah. I always still call him Scott and <laughs> you know, but uh, yeah, I think um, obviously was, they knew they could beat Gargano, so that's why they, they targeted Gargano. But yeah, it was just it was cl- the first fall was your classic heel tag team tactics, you know, uh, revival just do revival do. I think I lost count the amount of times that Corey Graves mentions that they're a machine in the first five minutes because he mentions <laughs> it quite a lot. Yeah, in the main yeah in the main event when Samoa Joe puts on three submissions in a row, he calls him the Samoan submission specialist. I mean, come yeah. on, man! <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's, consistency, Corey. Uh, but it's 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 a classic first fall and a two out of three. But it builds towards what comes builds towards what's coming later. Uh, mm-hmm. The best thing I could note from the first fall is I love the the Heart Foundation gear, the, uh, the revival. I know Gary would love the Heart Foundation stuff. Well, just as much. It's a good touch. Yeah, I mean, it did start from... Um, the one thing I did notice when it came to this fall as well, I don't know if you guys noticed it, but was the way that Johnny Gargano took the shatter machine. And the fact that he wasn't flat when he was flat, when he was, like, sort of into that face buster, he was sort of at an angle. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. So when coming yeah. over the rope to do his slingshot over the rope DDT, uh, he just sort of came in at an angle, and I honestly thought that he was going to be like get an injury to his head <laughs> yeah he sold it brilliantly yeah normally I'm not a fan of two out of three fall matches because to me it kind of feels like well you know one's going to get the first fall and one's going to get the second fall <laughs> so they, then nothing really matters that's all mm-hmm. foreplay 
and uh, but no, this match was this match was much. This was different. I mean, it was a joy watching the back again, because one of the things I loved about it just like it got you on your toes from the very start. You know, straight away there was that L, uh, near fall with uh, Johnny on uh, Dawson. I think he, he does a, a small package. God, I've not seen so many small packages in a match. <laughs> I know they, uh, <laughs> lots of jokes that you'd have, you'd have there, but um, it was great. Uh, I, I thought it, was, it got the match off to a really great start. It put you on your toes, got you paying attention straight away, and just challenged that, you know, people that me that maybe have that think, think and say, oh, well, we know where this is going to go. I thought it was great. Great, uh, I mean, the tag work in this match, as the guys just touched on there, Sarah, some great throughout the match, some great tag team wrestling, some great um, double teams, some really nice subtle work throughout it. I just loved it. Yeah, and when it came to the second fall, um, you could tell the, the Revival were obviously getting a little bit more desperate in the fact that Champ had finally managed to get himself in the ring. Um, but the, the fact that this came of, you know, the super kick and the, the knee combination, Tom, seeing that play back, obviously now knowing what DIY became, my heart's still sad. Um, but like the action when they finally got that last, like that second fall, you were just like, oh my God, they're back in it. They've got a chance. Yeah. I mean, they make you wait for it. Like they really like it's not just a case of they do the traditional that you would do at that point in a regular tag match anyway. You where where it's Johnny fighting back, fighting back, fighting back until he makes that hot tag. Champa comes in and clears the ring. He comes in and clears the ring, but then there's kickouts to the to yeah. the moves and then they make you wait for that big move and it's a spectacular moment and then you realise as well oh wait there's another fall to go yet it's mm-hmm. i mean two out two, the two out of three falls format it suits champer and gargano so well just in the fact that like it, it enables them to go high energy ring awareness from the revival at the point like they they gel to anything the revival at this point like you're at peak revival you're at peak revival in their time Oh, there's a great bit, Sarah, just as you're touching on, Tom, there of this finish where it looks like the the Revival are going to get, I think it was Johnny, with their own move and suddenly, you know, they miss up um, the, Dawson hits the super kick, I think it was and then suddenly, and there must be another way around, suddenly they're in, he's in, Dawson's in the middle of the ring and you then get the camera angle, yeah. so it pans out and you realise, oh, here we go. <laughs> and uh, you get the super kick and the running knee, which obviously looks devastating. And mm-hmm. then we're back in business. Those, um, yeah. those near falls that Tom mentioned were great because I thought like there was a couple ones Revival were getting as well. Yeah. So you were kind of like, this could be a straight one. Could you imagine how much the crowd would have went crazy if the Revival won 2-0? Oh yeah. Because <laughs> oh, that's something that we ha- that we do talk about every single time that I find out there's a two out of three falls match, and if it doesn't fit a storyline, I get mad. Um, but this was actually a very very good idea to put because this was essentially DIY's first of all their last chance, but obviously it was what could have been the end of the rivalry as well. So what better way is to prove? that you can get two falls over the other person. But Dave, the final fall. Now, there's two times that this match could have ended, in my opinion. So it could have ended when 
the when DIY had hit the shatter machine. That could have been mm. an ideal ending, stealing their move. But the double submission and tap out at the end when Dash and Dawson are holding hands. And as I, like, I was very, very torn in this match because I, everyone knows I was a big fan of the revival. I was a huge fan of DIY, so I wasn't mad about who won. <laughs> but like seeing that uh-huh. final fall, do you think it should have ended in the way it did or with them using the shatter machine after a failed attempt at the other finishers? Honestly, I mean, watching it back, I would have accepted either of those finishes because, you know, we had... The Revival were the first one to instigate the, the meet in the middle, you know, try and steal the finisher there. Obviously, they botched it up, but um, DIY hitting the Shatter Machine, I mean, it would have been proper comeuppance for, uh, for missing out on so many occasions, but... The number of tag team finishers that all all four of these guys did together, you know, the revival pulled out the heart attack at one point. You know, again, <laughs> another tribute to uh, the heart foundation. The the pink and black just added to that. But the the dual submission, I don't think there was a more perfect way to finish it because instead of just making one of revival tap out, you make both of them tap. And they, they had to throw me. I was saying, no, don't. They were holding hands. They were like, don't tap, don't tap, don't tap. <laughs> they literally go. They both go at the same time, and it's obviously Gargano and, uh, and uh, Dash were the legal guys, so that has the count. But Champa, you know, just locking it up to really tie them up in knots. It was such an iconic finish. It was already a I'm a filled match, you know, with the deer falls, stealing finishers, and just a sheer mix of high flying DIY and really sort of ground based technical stuff for revival. It was, it was the most perfect finish that anybody could have asked for mm-hmm. and something i wanted to actually discuss with you guys is watching this back is the difference that you're seeing from tomato champa compared oh. to now it was very strange without the veins so popping out i was like is he all right forgetting this was 2016 he looked uh, that's one of the first things i wrote down was the difference in the character of a uh, Tommaso Ciampa, because he was kind of, you might disagree with me here, but he was a wee bit bland, I think, back then, compared to what he went on to become. He didn't use the psycho killer gimmick that he had in the Indies before he joined up, that eventually become, it kind of teases it when him and Johnny face off in the first round of the Dusty Classic, which was a couple of months before it, but he never really gets into his full stride as an NXT character until... He obviously turns on Johnny and then becomes goes on that amazing heel run. Uh, but because it was all really built on Johnny as well. I mean, said I actually look back because I was looking back on the rankings we did on the NXT Greatest Takeover matches a couple yeah. uh, two and a half years ago, and I remember we ranked this match at number five mm-hmm. out of twenty-five takeovers. The only ones, the only matches we ranked above it were Bailey and Sasha at Brooklyn. Gargano and Andrade in Philadelphia, Dunning Bait in Chicago, and Gargano Champa New Orleans. Yeah. The first 25. So <laughs> it's just so it still remains to me. Dave might argue with me till he's blue in the face, but it's the best NXT tag team match of all time. Still. <laughs> oh no, no, I agree. Yeah, listen, like don't get me wrong. I think this is arguably NXT's greatest ever tag team match, but I'm still got a soft spot for Undisputed Era versus Larkin and Birch in Chicago. I mean, that is other... a fantastic match. Thank oh, you, Tom. Absolutely. I mean, I agree with you, Dave. What, uh, one of the things that caught me about that match you just mentioned was I didn't expect much of it, and then it just completely blew me away. Uh, mm-hmm. with yeah, that, it. I mean, this match was given this match was given four and a half stars out of five. 
um, by Uncle Dave. I'm not sure what more these guys could have done and how you fault them for anything in this match. It was blood. Oh, there was blood. Fabulous. They could have held the match in Tokyo and they might get five stars. That's what my head uh, was uh, uh, was it. But I'll tell <laughs> you what, though, um, what WWE, this, this, this was voted WWE's match of the year in 2016. And, uh, if Tony Khan has booked it, I'm going to get five stars as well. I'm not going to be biased. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. But I think this is a fact that this was slapped by in the middle of the story to come. Um, and that it basically threw everyone off the track because you thought, nah, if they're not going to do it, then something's gonna, somebody's going to turn. There's always going to be a breakup of a tag team. But no, they pulled you in, mainly me, to a false sense of security until, you know, that night. That just, that, that night. Because it's so, still, yeah. sore. still sore, Sarah. It'll always be sore. See, when it came on and I heard Chrome Heart, so I went, oh, I missed that theme so much. I missed the theme as well. I missed the revival theme as well. NXT done a tremendous job with their tag team division. I mean, we were about to go into like a golden era of NXT tag team. We were in it with all the great tag teams that they would go on to produce. It was, uh, they they made tag team wrestling uh, interesting again. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. one of like our, our very own Alan McLucas actually said that like this match was like a thing that made him kind of interested in tag team wrestling again because we all know he hated tag team wrestling. So, <laughs> but we'll move on to the, the the sort of penultimate match of the night, and this was Mickey James's return to WWE after getting hit by a train in TNA. Yes, I'm so <laughs> glad somebody referenced that. That is such a terrible, a, such a terrible storyline. Every time when she returned to when she returned to Impact, I was like, oh my god, Father James Mitchell made her bring come back from the dead. It's like she's alive. I will always reference that. I will always reference the fact that people have been killed off. I'm, I'm waiting. I'm still waiting for Taya Valkyrie to, you know, say that she got released from prison early, um, wow. for good behaviour. Mm. Or, you know, the other resurrection of Ethan Page. If somehow, I don't know. I'm waiting for those resurrections. But in this women's titles match, like, Asuka had sort of run out of opponents yeah. to face her because nobody was ready for Asuka. And this was not even the near time of Shayna Baszler era. Um, so, Tom, having this match, sort of a big match return for Mickey James after, you know, getting hit by a train. Do you think that she was the right person to be the next in line to face Asuka, given the pool of talent that was non-existent right now um, in NXT, given the four horsewomen had obviously moved on, and that's including Bailey as well? I think, I think she proved that she was. To be honest, um, I don't. I don't think anyone would have perhaps said at that point, "What about James?" Asuka like I don't think Mickey James was the person you was you you would immediately think of at that point yeah to be the person that that um that would be the next obvious challenger for Asuka but this match is great like like it's it's a very very good match um and I I think yeah I think think even if you didn't think she was she definitely proves that she was the next person to challenge Asuka mm-hmm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anybody else got any different thoughts about? Not a know, different. 
not a different thought, Sarah, but I, I agree with with Tom that when it got announced, you were kind of like, oh yeah. Uh, and it had this kind of like exhibition match type of feel to it for me. And as you said, Asuka needed somebody else to, to go through. So she'd won, obviously won the championship at, uh, against Bailey at Dallas and she, and she mm-hmm. had uh, been subjected to Nia Jax at TakeOver The End there and really rematch at Brooklyn too so she needed something else to do Um, I thought it was I I liked the story of this match as well once it got going there wasn't a great build up to it other than it being announced really but they started off quite respectful and then it sort of changed a bit when uh, Asuka hit that German suplex outside of the ring Mm -hmm. there and then we got I think the match then got cooking and there was so uh, it was quite a hard hitting match at times as well I thought there's some really nice moves throughout it um, there was a great bit where um, Mickey was telling Asuka to bring it on with the kicks and she got a really, a really nice counter to it but somehow opted to go for single leg Boston Crab which felt a bit weird and it was quite a good submission sequence that followed on from that as well. I loved um, Asuka's roll through into the arm bar that she applied at one point and we had a great mick kick at one point which made you think for just a second oh she's actually mm-hmm. going to pull this out here um, I thought the uh, it was given three and a half stars which probably I think was probably about right for it and again like I said earlier on, I thought the finish was just a bit too sudden. Yeah, um, yeah. Although it did look quite vicious, the way I don't think they meant to end up in the position they ended in. I think it was supposed to be an ask a lot, but it looked quite sudden. And I just thought the tap out just, you know, if they could have just a couple more seconds to let you get invested in it, see the pain, feel the pain, and then go for it. Sorry, Stephen. Mm. No, I, I think you're. You were, I agree with what you said, Gary, but the f- sudden finish, I think it's probably, for that three and a half stars it was given, I think it's maybe a couple of minutes, two or three minutes shy of getting there. I think if it given that bit more extra time, I think it would have been, you know, worthy of the three and a half stars. Um, but uh, I think the point about Mickey James being the bright opponent for Ask at the time was spot on, especially when you look, say, at the, the dark match, women's match they had that particular night. Yeah, the, the six women tag match. Yeah, because at that point they had they had Ember Moon who had just joined. I mean, she would obviously mm-hmm. eventually become Asuka's main challenger on NXT. They had yeah. uh, Sonya Deville who was pretty raw at that particular point off of the back of Tough Enough. Uh, Billy came, Pete and Royce, they had just joined in. They would eventually, in the next takeover, get the shot. Uh, Liv Morgan, similarly to Sonya Deville, was quite raw at that yep. particular point in time. And, and then, then there's Miss, uh, Miss Eddie to yourself. <laughs> and then there's uh, member five of Team SmackDown, Aaliyah. So, <laughs> that Miss NXT, yeah. She is literally the. what If Vince McMahon's going to walk into NXT 2.0 and go see her, she's the example. She, <laughs> we've built her. And look where she is now. No, but no seriousness. Um, I'm still buzzing off of your revolution reference from TNA. <laughs> I love. I will it's, always reference weird things from TV uh, in my life. The thing that got me about this match watching it is there's a there's the chant from the fans at the start to Mickey going, "You've still got it," and I'm sitting there thinking she was in like TNA like a week ago. Yeah, she's still wrestling. <laughs> she was still uh, in hardcore country, but ah, exactly. So it's like it's not like she's been away for ten years like Sting was or something like that. It was just like she's 
She's still she's still in her mid thirties. It's not exactly yeah. like she's gone. Aye. But, no, that is a fair point. Yeah, like cause she was still consistently wrestling. It wasn't like she took a hiatus away or anything. But um, I think in a standalone context, this match actually does go very well. I think it suffered though the fact that I had to follow the two out of three falls match. You know, again, it's the example of, um, you know, Balor and Owens having to follow, what was uh, what was the one previously? Well, did they have to, what, 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 what match did they have to follow? Yeah, the ladder match. Uh, Wasn't it was a Bailey and Sasha no, no. Yeah, they had to follow Bailey and Sasha. Yeah, it, I, I felt this was uh, in a similar position, so it was... Um, Again, to use uh, one of Sarah's references on this one, you know, the two out of three falls was the climax, and this one was the flaccid match. <laughs> oh, that's my joke. Sorry. I'm a power thief tonight. 50 quid for that, please. <laughs> that, that joke was worth money. Um, but yeah, like, over, overall, I would say it's it's not an awful match and essentially because at this time there was no really any challengers that were even ready for Asuka. I mean, I, I don't know how Mickey James was ready despite being hit by like a train after James Storm decides, <laughs> nah, off you go. Was, head there, <laughs> was there not a rumor that it was actually meant to be Trish Stratus that it was supposed to face Asuka because it was in Toronto, but yet Mickey James was subbed in uh, because I don't know, she had Trish had other commitments or something? I have no idea. I'd never heard anything about Trish Stratus being the one to, because I know that she voted her like the one more match to be against Charlotte. Um, mm. So yeah, I don't think it would have been no offense. To a fault, no, but... no, no offense to Trish, she is she is one of the best that they've ever produced in WWE from the female point of view. But I don't think putting away Asuka would have been the best mix. I think the Charlotte ones was a, was a safer bet for Trish. Mm -hmm. While as Mickey, on the other hand, Mickey's a more is more suited to having that sort of match. Yeah. I, I don't think you could put Trish in there and get stiff shots the way Asuka could do. No, and she wouldn't have survived them. No, I, don't I, don't think. Think, I don't think it would, have, it would have probably been a bad way for Trish to go out, whereas the Charlotte match is perfect for them, Trish to have a one-off return. Nice. Yeah. I suppose, though, they sold the submission game very well. You know, as Gary mentioned, you know, there was a good bit of chain submission wrestling with the arm bars followed by the Asuka lock. And again, even though it was a bit sudden, that's... I suppose that added a sense of realism to it because normally like you know when you see ronda rousey put people in an arm bar when she was in ufc that was it you know it was over in like two seconds so and i guess it sort of highlights you know how dominant asuka was not as just as a striker but also as a submission specialist so i think this really emphatically showed like how dominant asuka was even against an established veteran absolutely um I would say still a pretty good overall match, obviously, for them needing a women's title match on the card. But we're going to move on to the main event, which was the NXT title match when it was still the OG X belt um, with Shinsuke Nakamura and Samoa Joe challenging, hopefully, to become a two-time champion. Again, big match feel. Shinsuke with his lots and lots of violins. Um... <laughs> I would probably say that this is actually one of my more favourite entrances for Shinsuke, but I think it's just because there was loads and loads of violence, and that's just funny. No, no, I completely agree. I think the only thing that, you know, because he was always good to, like, to have a, a band out performing with him and stuff, but 
his best entrance of all time was definitely WrestleMania 34, like where he had the, the entire rock band, people wearing his, the, they were all wearing his merch, and most importantly, Nita Strauss on lead guitar. Like, it made him feel like a legit main eventer. Like, he was on a completely other level back then um, compared to what he was, like, how he is nowadays. I mean, she's not Rick Boogs. They're not dissing Rick Boogs. They're not dissing Rick Boogs. Boogs is the man. Boogs. He didn't have a band. He didn't have a band, but I love Samoa Joe's theme tune. I just love that tune. I would love to be coming off a train at Glasgow Central, going to a night out in Sucky Hall Street just for that song playing. This also showed that Joe didn't actually need like the big elaborate thing because he was essentially a fighter um, and he, he had his heart sort of set on this moment because I think because um, this came at the time that Shinsuke was actually my hero because he did the whole like nose crank to Joe and he's like I got your nose, I got your nose <laughs> And honestly, he was my hero watching like that episode of NXT before before that was they were just getting to a wee fight and he's just like ha, laughing at himself and I'm like he's so adorable. Um, but yeah, so what was everybody's thoughts on this match? Because I know that this is one of the very last times that that Joe was able to actually use the muscle buster as well before he just before he accidentally um, injured Natty's husband. <laughs> Uh, I, I love this presentation of Joe as this uh, killer Joe um, and in the build up to when you rewatch the the video package beforehand you see him just way waste everybody, loved it as well but when you watch this back and you think how on earth did neither of these two guys go on to become a WWE world champion because they were so so <laughs> over and popular and just love them. This is because people are taken seriously on NXT. I was always I was saying this as well. It's one of the very last times that Shinsuke was taken seriously as a performer. Yeah. Mm. And some of the stuff they pulled off this match, like Joe, uh, there was some unique offense, like when he sort of power, how could you describe it, sort of power slammed Nakamura onto his knees as well, thought was really good. The agility of Joe throughout the match with some of the moves he pulled off and an absolutely devastating looking suicide dive. Can you imagine somebody saying to you, like, if you stand here and see that big fucker, he's going to run and jump through these ropes and land on <laughs> land squarely on top of you. No fucking way. <laughs> I, I just just do that. I'm in danger. <laughs> <laughs> this big 20 stone man just comes at you like at the speed of a train. It's like, you might as well be hit by a train, you know, like Mickey James was. Yeah. Hey. That, um, that was the thing in the, the video package as well. There was a couple of ones he would do, like he would, you know, put his whole weight on all these like, jobbers in the NXT ring, like, just give me, give me Nakamura, as he throws himself on top of him. Uh, and this, I mean, see when I remember this point in NXT, I always remember thinking the main events were underperformed compared to the, pre- the matches that fell before it, in the era of Bala, Joe, Nakamura, Roots, McIntyre. Never really felt the main event matches. But watching this back, I really, really did enjoy it. I think um, best I've seen some more Joe wrestle in a WWE ring. Not the best I've seen some more Joe wrestle. I'd be lying to myself, let's be brutally honest. <laughs> uh, but 
there was that sequence he did, the, the, the three suplexes, the separate suplexes, the German yeah. into the dragon, into the straitjacket, and I'm thinking, going, why have I never seen him do that? I've seen the yeah. man wrestle. I've seen the man wrestle so many bombing matches. I've seen him bombing wrestle everywhere in TNA, you know. And he's, I've never re- remembered him seeing that. And I just thought, see if he did that as a finishing sequence. I'd be. See if he did that and then muscle buster somebody. I'd be like, he's dead. There were so many matches in WWE game. So I was just going to say, I'm pretty sure in the WWE games that triple suplex was his signature move and then the muscle buster was his finisher. So yeah, yeah. it's a devastating combination. You know, it's like his own version of Suplex City, but he changes it up, you know, each time. But there were so many, there were so many moves in this match which were relatively simple moves, but incredibly effective. They looked really devastating, you know, the kicks, the suplexes, the power, uh, this was a sort of running power slam and he, he got Nakamura, there was a knee off the top rope, I think it was Nakamura hit Joe with as well, there were some moves in it that just were, rel- you know relatively simple but really well executed and looked absolutely fucking devastating mm. mm-hmm. It's I a completely I... it's a completely different presentation to what you get to the rest of the show, because mm-hmm. especially when you look at the, at the shows that come after this, where it moves into that NXT format of big move followed by a big kick out everything that joe does is a big move but it's really really basic it's really really powerful mm-hmm. and it's really really violent looking you almost mm-hmm. don't you almost don't want him to pin someone after he's done the move because it's it, you you're in shock at everything like how's he how's he done this to make it look as brutal as it does i mean the lead up to the finish is just a body slam Onto the steel, onto the steel steps. Oh. Like that's mm. so, so yeah. simple. I've, it's got well, such a kick to the balls before that, Tom. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> like, but they're all really basic things put together into like this, like almost symphony of violence, and it's absolutely beautiful by the end of it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think I, I think Joe and Nakamura like their matches don't get talked about enough from this era because they were they were arguably the best Nakamura had in WWE as well like this is such a solid set of matches especially when you look at the Osaka one afterwards as well they're so solid matches uh, and Nakamura was, wasn't short of, you know, showing off the, the strong style either. Like, I mean, as Gary mentioned, you know, there was the middle rope sort of Kinshasa type move. There was the consistent knees to the ribs. Like, especially, you know, seeing a guy like Joe, you know, who's normally quite the, the dominant one when it comes to power. Like, him taking shots like that is no is no picnic. You know, you've got a guy who's considerably smaller than him, you know, delivering such heavy, stiff shots. And it was a full-on... It was a full-on like scrap at one point and you know nakamura having to use the knees essentially as his main force and then as as uh as tom said you know the the uranagi on the outside they to on the stairs you know you need something that's simple but it was effective and the best part of it was the crowd just loved every single part of it you know there were there was never a dull moment with them they were doing the 10 chants with the referees count they were singing nakamura's theme throughout to get them sort of Bit of momentum back and like and it just nakamura's steam is one of the most contagious things i've ever heard people chant like people i could imagine people doing it for the entirety of that match and i wouldn't get sick of it 
Yeah, I've actually got in my notes, uh, fuck that urinagi on the steps. No, urinagi. That just sounds horrible. But I think what's good about this match is a lot of the matches before it, the, the two tag matches and in a way the women's title match, they're quite quick paced, you know, especially obviously the, the two tag matches is pretty much frantic throughout. These guys take the level down a bit and it's quite methodical in how they kind of try to dissect each other apart which I think works well with Joe, and especially I think what's good about Joe and he's at his best, is he's got that about him, and then one minute it's like, boom, you know, insecurity on the top rope, you know, he's done, you know, it, it, it's, it's frightening how a man like him can do, you know, that way, so powerful, ground and pound, and then literally can hit a move like that, like a cruiserweight could hit. It's scary at his best, and as Gary said, the fact that I mean, yeah, he is a three-time NXT champion, only a three-time NXT champion. But mm-hmm. the fact he never won, he's never, he probably won't win the big belt. It's a bit of a tra- travesty. To be fair, even in TNA, the fact he only won the belt in TNA once, it's mm. just as bad. I mean, people go, oh, WWE didn't book him right. He was in TNA for 10 years and he won the world title once. Yeah. That's, that's something. He's not had the credit he deserves in his career, I don't think, at the top, top level. Mm-hmm. And the, like the end of this match, this actually gave Samoa Joe the win in becoming a two-time NXT champion um, over Nakamura, I would say. Definitely when you look back on this, that those two men didn't get the credit they deserve, especially nowadays, um, the way that they get treated on the main roster. Obviously, Shinsuke's doing slightly better now, um, but I think especially when we had the sort of work up towards um, Shinsuke and AJ at that Wrestlemania when everyone had the expectations and sadly WWE just decided, nah, we're not going to deliver for you um, and make everyone look like an idiot but I want to know um, who was your sort of standout performers throughout the entire show, so Tom I'll start with you I mean it's very difficult to narrow it down to just one standout performer. I think you've got to look like, on a whole, it's got to be the revival and DIY for this. But I think, I think you've got to look at. I think I think Mickey James does fantastic in this show. I was very tempted to give her the standout performer, um, for it when I was when I was thinking about it. I think Mickey James really deserves a mention. Um, but I think I think it's got to go for Joe. I think I think Joe puts himself on such a diff like he presents such a different outlook um, to to everyone else's presentation. NXT's starting to develop a certain style at this point, um, and it's going to follow into that pattern of doing doing matches very similar to each other. But Joe just goes, "No, I'm going to do this match my way." And the crowd's either going to like it or they don't. And it just pays off very well for him. So I think I'm going to go with Joe. Cool, cool. Dave, who would, who would be your standout performer or performers? See, I had to think about this one because, you know, I think obviously this is a very much a one-match show. But I tried to give myself the benefit of the doubt and see who else could stand out. But for me, this was a no-brainer. It has to be Johnny Gargano. You know, given that, you know, he was the victim of the the fall in TakeOver Brooklyn, the storytelling in the two out of three falls match alone was everything that 
you need in a perfect tag team feud. Like they were reenacting at one point, you know, the he had Dawson in the submission hold. Uh, you know, Gargano had his leg taken out, then he had his other leg taken out, and you thought, right, that's it, he's in trouble. But I think the way that DIY as a whole just sort of bounced back, you know, took down these two guys who know tag team wrestling inside and out, it was almost it it was worthy of like a final boss battle and but obviously, you know, the the change in Champa's character started to become a little bit evident. Johnny Gargano felt like you know, the main protagonist of that story against, you know, the against the revival. So for me, uh, Gargano was the MVP of this show. <laughs> Stephen? Yeah, so you go into re-watching it, I thought it was always going to be Johnny Gargano because I remembered him as pretty much for all the mentions Dave said. So I decided to try and go a bit left field and try and pick somebody who I don't remember as much putting on a good show going into it. No, not him. Uh, I tried to... I tried to think somebody who kind of surprised me and, you know, their levels of performance, you know, exceeded what I remembered. And so I'm going to go shocker and I'm going to go with Nick Miller from TM61. I'm going to go, I'm going to, I'm, yeah, no, it's a, I thought, I, 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 had, I had a joint one down with him and Johnny Gargano. So Dave's already said Gargano. So, um, yeah, I just, uh, I don't, I always remember Shane Thorne being the standout one from the small things in TM61, but see some of the things that Nick Miller was doing, he was throwing these bum offers of pain guys about like they were, <laughs> you know, like they were cruiserweights, he was hitting moonsaults and all that stuff. Just, I thought he had the complete arsenal to be a solid star in WWE. So obviously he left for these reasons of, you know, I took him back to Australia. I don't know if it was partly that and the booking of TM61, they had that typical injury in NXT and kind of forgotten about because all the guys have came up. Mm-hmm. I mean, the Hideo Atami effect, it should be known as, you know, you're a, you're a great star, but if you're injured, you, get, you have to go down. So, yeah, he just really shocked me, you know, and that's why I've went for him. I just think he stands out really well on a show that he, I don't ever remember him being anything other than a guy takes a pin, takes the pin for all the pain <laughs> before the show. Yep. And the lovely Gary. Oh, thank you, Sarah. Um, I think the guy uh, makes some interesting points there. Uh, when you watch this back as well, it, it's a crying shame that in some way that this was probably the highlight of Mickey James's r- r- second run in WWE. So I'm not sure she gets another you know, top moment when she goes on SmackDown like that uh, heel turn when she teamed up with Alexa Bliss so that did nothing for me uh, there I um, I had a top three so the third one I had was the revival I thought they were fabulous uh, second one was close to all between this and the guy I went for as the MVPs the show uh, I thought Samoa Joe was was phenomenal this night but uh, second type night I'm agreeing with David Hockney uh, Johnny Gargano he was the workhorse of this match see at the end of the match when you seen Gargano and Champer stood next together Gargano looked absolutely fucked <laughs> and Chamba looked like he just turned up <laughs> I just thought uh, Johnny did have both his legs taken out and he ate a brutal shatter machine early on. <laughs> uh, I just thought he, he carried the majority of the match. I thought he was a standard performer. I thought some great selling, some great oh. offense, some some fabulous chain wrestling throughout it. So I thought this was a, a sort of breakout moment for Gargano. See what you saying that, Gary? It reminds me of, uh, was it the Royal Rumble where uh, Miz and, was it when Miz and Shane teamed together? 
and Miss keeps telling him to do all the moves. And she's just like, <laughs> <laughs> uh, nah. I, I thought you were going to mention as well. I, I thought you were going to mention Heath Slater when he was in the Rumble, and he was in it for ages, but he only got in the ring for a few seconds because he kept getting beat up on his way to the ring, and then he gets in the ring, he eliminates Sheamus, but then he's out a minute later, and Michael Cole in commentary says one of the greatest Michael Cole calls ever, which was, uh, I can't remember how long it was, I think it was like seven minutes or something. What an effort from Slater! (laughs) (laughs) He'd been in the ring for about ten seconds. Uh, The John Terry of the 2018 Royal Rumble. (laughs) How dare you disrespect Heathy Baby like that? But I'll get your overall star ratings for the entire show as well, because I know as much as Unky Dave likes to tell us what um, what matches are like, I say we are better wrestling fans and know more than him. So Gary, what did you rate the overall show for NXT Takeover Toronto 2016? I think overall I'll give this four out of five. I would, because um, I thought there was some really good matches in there. The main event delivered in the tag match is one of the greatest NXT matches of all time, and the other matches were all re- all really solid and good. So yeah, four out of five for me. Four out of five, Stephen. What was your your choosing? I'll go slightly lower than Gary. I think I'm going to go three point seven five on this one. I think the you know the it was never going to get lower than a three. With the, with the tag title match, it's a classic. It's one of my. Sarah, make him pick a proper number. No, Dave's going to pick three point six seven in a minute. I know it's Mister on the fence. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know. Two point five, point five, and point seven five are acceptable. Anything else? Anything above five, I'm just leaving. Give it a five. Three point one four. But uh, no, no, uh, yeah. The tag, about to say three sixteen there. The, the, tag, <laughs> the tag title match is one of my favourite tag matches of all time. You know, I think the opening two matches are pretty solid. The main event's pretty good. I think based on what we spoke about, if the Mickey and Asuka match had maybe been given a, a few more minutes to just pad out the ending a wee bit and not feel so sudden, I would have went with the four. But because of that, I just go short of the four and go a three point seven five. Good then. Dave, what did you rate this entire show? I'm going to be a little more generous here. I'm giving it 4.25 because... Oh, he's again, going to a 0.25 I... and nobody's slagging Dave. <laughs> well, you, you Can made you it okay. see my reaction? Yes, you made it okay. <laughs> <laughs> I know you normalised um, this, Stephen. Oh my god. Yeah, no, the 2 out of 3 falls match is the one match that this show gave it this rating for primarily, but... The main event also delivered, you know, given what these two guys pulled off. And I think that main event was vastly underrated, you know, compared to what else was on the show. What I think let it down, though, is, is that I think the the Dusty Cup probably should have been given a bit more time, you know, to really hammer home, you know, how important it was. And it wasn't like it wasn't necessarily a guaranteed win for the Office of Pain, or at least at least, at least that's, that's what they could have told the story. Like TM61 could have pulled off a massive upset. The opener was solid for Rudin Dillinger, so I'll, I'll give it fair credit where credit's due. The solid opener, and Asuka Mickey James again, I'd say follows up to that same category. So yeah, the Dusty Cup probably should have gone better, but everything else was great, just not excellent, if you get me. Yeah, and Tom, what was your rating? Well, I was three point seven five, but I don't want Gary to shout at me, so I'll go for four. <laughs> 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 I 
<laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll go with I'll go with four. I think I think yeah, I think everything's. I I I think I think the opener is good. I don't think I think Bobby Roode has a lot more better matches to come. Um, I think there's a little bit of a chemistry breakdown with uh, Dillinger. Um, perfectly fine final for the Dusty Cup DIY revival. That's a five star match. Don't care what Uncle Dave says. Asker and Mickey James. I I think we we all watched a very different Asker Mickey James match because I thought that was a really solid match. I'd happily give that four stars, and then I'd probably go four and a half for the main because yeah. Very good ratings and Uncle Dave knows nothing. But I want to thank my panel for joining me today for looking back at NXT TakeOver Toronto 2016. In the upcoming weeks now, we have got two Survivor Series lookbacks coming up. So we are going to be looking at the 1996 Survivor Series and the week, uh, a little bit after, um, it'll be the 2001 uh, Survivor Series lookback along with Central every single week whenever Ross McLeod is able to film it, as well as in the upcoming weeks, we have got a Brody Lee tribute show coming up towards the end of November. And then I, for some reason, have been left in charge of reviewing ECW December to Dismember. Yes! Um, <laughs> which is yes! going to be a bit of a fun one. That'll be coming out the first week in December as well. I'm going to be drunk watching uh, reviewing that show, Sarah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 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 could you please? Drunk Gary's amazing. Drunk Gary's much better than Sober Gary. Right, okay, so it's, it's now going to be a drunk review of ECW December to December, which I am so looking forward to. That should be the Christmas special. We should review a really... What's, a, what's an equally bad pay-per-view? Just review it. King of the Rings, 95. Oh no. I would no. Say, like, hang, on, hang, on hang on a minute. Hang on a minute. Oh, oh hang on. Oh, no, 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 no. I've just real oh, I've just realised what that who, who won that year. You 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 fucking at it, Hopney. <laughs> the year of the legends won the I'm King sorry. of the Rings. I'm sorry. Oh. The centre of the last Christmas special. How dare you? Oh, Stephen, Stephen, I'm writing a letter to HR in the morning. Hockney needs to be gone from this podcast. Oh, that's, that's the best thing ever. <laughs> and on that note, how about the first, the, that history-making moment when that the first ever black man wins King of the Ring, and Hockney wants it written, struck from the record books. Uh, uh, no, no, I said we should review it. I said we should Dave, review it. Dave, just quit while you're behind. <laughs> How about I will, you know what, I'm going to put this out to the listeners, right? What do you think that we should actually review drunkenly? Because I have a feeling that you guys would make us go through the works. But again, I, I want to thank my panel and I'm going to separate Dave and Gary before Gary kills Dave. So guys, thank you very much for joining me. Dave, lock your doors. I will. <laughs> and we will see you all next time. Hello, I am Jack Graham. I am Scott McLeod. And I'm David Hockney. And you can catch us hosting one of the greatest shows in the history of podcasts, Saturday Draft Live. You can tune in every Saturday to find out who on the ESSR has the best chance of winning current season of our fantasy draft as always you can catch Saturday Draft live on all good podcasting platforms